It's really difficult to find great executives. Spirit Consulting helps organizations find all-star executives and hire the right one using work psychology so you can serve more customers and grow your business. To get a free quote, go to spiritmco.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Virtuous Heroes podcast. Adrian, so excited for you to be on the podcast today. You're a doc, you have a doctorate in ministry, a master's in divinity, a bachelor's in religion, and you're the director of chaplain services and education at Duke Raleigh Hospital. So excited to be able to connect with you on the podcast today. Um, first question is, would you mind telling us a little bit of how you got to the leadership position that you're in today? And the other thing that comes to mind, Adrian, is like, dang, like, you know, like, you know, with all that focus within, within religions, like religious studies in your life, like what an interesting way that you've been so focused at an early age where like some people have, you know, in essence, maybe gone into more worldly pursuits and then kind of made the shift where it seems like you've had this focus throughout your life. Yeah. Just really excited to, to learn more about your leadership journey. And if you could touch upon that as well, that'd be great. Yeah. Thanks, Christopher. And I'm, I'm thankful to be a part of the podcast. And uh, it's funny you mentioned the kind of trajectory of my life. I, I knew at 18 years old that uh, I had a call to ministry on my life. I had no idea uh, exactly at the time what that was going to look like. It, in the tradition, the church that I grew up in, a lot of our pastors and a lot of our churches were very rural. And so in my mind, I thought that I would just go be a, a rural church pastor and that was going to be what uh, what my life was going to be about. And so at 18, I, I, I knew heading off into undergraduate that that's what I was being called to do. And it wasn't until my, my junior year in undergrad that uh, was introduced to the idea of church planting. Uh, something, a, a, a concept that I had not really heard too much about, but began to be intrigued by it and, and open to the possibility of that. And uh, subsequently, after graduating from undergrad, was part of a church planting team uh, in, in a town right outside of Raleigh in, in Nightdale, and also started at Divinity School, at Duke Divinity School. And uh, it was at Duke Divinity School that I got connected into chaplaincy, and specifically at uh, at the time, it was called Raleigh Community Hospital. It's now known as Duke Raleigh Hospital. And they had never had a staff chaplain before. Uh, in fact, when patients needed chaplains, there would be, from what they tell me, there would be an overhead announcement in the hospital that if there's a minister in the hospital, could you go to room 2223? And you never really knew who you were going to get in terms of whether someone was going to show up and what kind of individual would show up. And so I, I walked into a job where I was wanted. Um, the physicians every year would do a physician satisfaction survey. And for the two years prior to my arrival, their number one request was a larger lounge. Uh, their number two request was pastoral services. And so I walked into a job where I, I was, I was seen as in a lot of respects as being a, uh, an addition, a welcomed addition. I started part-time uh, while I was still in Divinity School. And when I finished Divinity School, I, I came on full-time as the chaplain at, uh, at Raleigh Community. And as the hospital has changed through the years, um, it, it was given a new name. It's part of the Duke University Health System. And my, my 
role has changed through the years to now move into a, a management role in the hospital. Awesome. So how long were you in kind of like boots on the ground chaplain type of work versus the leadership role? Yeah, so I was the, the staff chaplain, the single staff chaplain for a number of years up until 2010. So I started in 2003 for seven years. It was just me. Um, I got married in 2009 and had a kid in 2010 and come to find out that was the way to grow our department as well. I took a paternity leave and they let me hire a, uh, a person to come in and uh, kind of in a PRN role to be here when I wasn't here. And so uh, that person stayed on when I came back to work. And in 2012, we had another kid and I was allowed to hire another PRN chaplain. And so I was convincing my wife, like the more children we have, the more people I get to hire at the hospital. And uh, she went for that a third time. We have three kids. And, uh, but it was really in the 2012, 2013 timeframe that we did some partnership with Duke University Hospital to bring what's called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education Program to, to Duke Raleigh. So we started having interns uh, come and, and work at our hospital, specifically in chaplaincy. And it was in that time that I really started moving in more towards a director or a manager role uh, where I was managing these students. And really over the last four years, our, our department has grown to encompass two CPE, full-time CPE educators, a program manager position for a, a new program we're started called Caring for Each Other. Uh, we also have five full-time chaplain residents. Uh, we've got an administrative assistant and we uh, usually have anywhere from eight to 10 interns who join us each year. So I, I moved into a director role uh, a little over a year ago uh, after being in a manager role for a number of years. Hmm. Well, that is uh, some loyalty and stability that's really uncommon in today's age. I mean, a lot of people move around to many different organizations and love how you've been able to you know, keep that loyalty and, and be able to grow uh, within the organization and also grow the program out as well. Just curious as to like, have there, I would imagine that you probably have thousands of stories of your work, like, you know, working with patients as a chaplain, but are there any that really kind of like, you know, remain at the forefront of your mind um, of really being able to like, uh, that your work with that person like it summarizes perfectly the work of a chaplain. Yeah, there's a, a few stories that come to my mind. And uh, I, I hope I hope as long as I have the capacity to remember that I'll remember these. The, the first one was a, a gentleman who was a, a pastor and who landed in our intensive care unit. And early on in, in my time at, at the hospital as a chaplain, I was still in divinity school. And so having that that focus on education, I was so eager to just share what I had been learning. And, and he was, he was like subject A for me to be able to do that. I mean, he was a pastor and he enjoyed talking uh, about the, about similar subjects that I enjoyed talking about that I was learning about. And so I would go and I would visit this man. And I, I think I really, I, I missed um, opportunities to provide pastoral care. I, I really saw a colleague and someone who, who I could just share life with and share uh, frustrations and ministry with. And I, I was giving this guy everything that I had. I mean, every, every um, ounce of scripture that I knew, every word of encouragement that I had, every uh, 
word of hope that I could speak to him because he was he was in a pretty tough situation and it was touch and go there for a while whether he was going to make it or not. And I always left his room feeling like I was able to help you. If there was no one else I could help today, I helped this guy. And about a year later, I I met him at the mall. I was in the uh, in a, one of our local malls and I was walking and caught his eye on the kind of the long runway there. And he had his, his, his three boys with him, which I had heard stories of. I had met some of them. And, uh, and so we immediately saw each other, got grave a big hug, just talked, caught up on life. And he looked at his kids and he says, this is the chaplain that I was telling you guys about, that I've been talking to you about, you know, how, how, how much he was, you know, he helped me. And, and I just remember like my pride billowing up a little bit like yeah that's right you know i was able to do all these things and then he said something that just crushed me he, he said to his kids he said i don't i don't really remember anything this guy said but i remember him being there for me hmm. and in a moment I, I i learned a valuable lesson on the gift of presence as, as well as um at times maybe what's not so helpful uh, as well when people are walking through their dark nights of the soul and, uh, and that, that would come to serve me a couple of years later. I was visiting with a Hispanic gentleman who was actively dying. He was in an organ failure and uh, he was in his mid thirties. He had three children, three small children. His wife was estranged, no idea where she was. The rest of the family was back in Mexico. Uh, and our social worker had seen him and seen him and talking to him about plans for his children that the doctors had shared with him. There was really nothing more they could do. And, and so that night I actually got a phone call from my boss who said tomorrow morning, when you get to work, first thing I need to speak to you. And I thought, Oh man, I've not had this job too long and I'm going to get let go. That was the first thing that crossed my mind. So the next morning I went to, to see my manager and she said, have you been visiting with this, with this gentleman? And I said, yes. And, she said, you, are you aware of how sick he is? And I said, yeah, you know, I've been hearing that, that things weren't looking very good for him. And she said, well, last night the social worker was visiting with him and he has made you the guardian of his children. Oh, my gosh. And, I, yeah, my eyes, I mean, I think at this time I was in my mid-20s, not married, um, and just kind of trying to reason in my mind, like, well, what does that mean? Like the guardian of his children. She said, if something happens to him, he has listed you as the person who would take his children. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I immediately went into scramble mode. I think the first call I made was to my mom and uh, like, uh, mom, I, I, can't, I don't know what to do. Like if something happens to this man, I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a dad at this point. Like I have no idea how to, how to parent these kids. And, I think my next call was to a, a Latino congregation um, and I thankfully was able to get hold of the pastor and just asking him, like, where did this come from? Like, why in the world would he choose me? And this this pastor shared with me that in a lot of Latin American countries, when the father would pass away or would go away, the padre of the church, the father of the church would step in as a surrogate father figure. Mm. And so he was in a lot of respects, bringing his culture to our hospital and into his situation. And that's one of the hardest conversations I've ever had to have is, you know, to tell a dying man, I can't, I can't take your children. 
and uh, and so there's been so many so many powerful uh, powerful visits and encounters through the years. Some that have been really hard, um, others that have been life giving where being with people and you would think being with people who are dying um in a lot of respects could be a sad job but i i look at that and i think so many of these people that i've been able to be with in their final moments have taught me so much about living and and how to live and so they have given me gifts that have been sacred and holy and gifts that i try to honor them by with how i live my life and how i engage other people well, I have uh, two follow-up questions to to that. The first is getting back into that story with the Latino man who was passing. Did he end up passing, and then what happened to his children? And then the other question is about you know just what have you learned about like deal? I mean, you kind of started to go into that a little bit about what it what you've learned from dealing with that many people passing but you know most of us will not have the same opportunity that a chaplain has of being able to be with people at the end of life but we all it's all guaranteed everyone has got the guarantee that at some point we're going to be with someone a loved one that's passing and so just kind of like wanted to also gain some um insight from you about you know, what are some of the best things to be doing in the grieving season that we, you know, that we don't want to miss for the sake of being able to like recognize the the blessings that we're receiving as we're, you know, um, meeting with a loved one that's passing. Yeah. So to your, to your first question, unfortunately, um, the, the gentleman did pass away. To my knowledge, his children became um, wards of the state. Okay. Where have a guardian. Uh, they, they likely ended up in foster care. Uh, I don't, I don't know too much about what happened after he passed. Um, and there was some regret with that too. I mean, thinking like, could I, should I, should I have said yet? Should I have tried to make that work? Um, I, I think for, for me, one of the, the great lessons has been the, how powerful the gift of our presence can be with people. And as our society has only gotten busier and more distracted in technology and schedules, just how powerful the gift of your presence can be with someone. And I think we underestimate that. I, I think sometimes we, we put the pressure on ourselves of trying to find the right words to say, or I don't know what to say to somebody who's in this situation. And yet the, the best thing you can give them is, is just to sit with them and to talk and listen when they want to talk. Uh, to listen when they're ready to engage, uh, to not feel like you've got to fix it. And at the same time, to not feel like you have to avoid it, that you, you know, you don't, I think sometimes we worry about saying things that are up, going to upset people. And the reality is, is particularly for people who are in that dying process, they, most of them are aware of what's happening. And so, you know, it, it's not one of those things where we have to avoid being, bringing it up or avoid, um, saying something that we think might, might upset them. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a story in the Bible where Job, you know, I think a lot of people, whether they are a person of faith or not, have probably heard that name Job before and acquainted with suffering. And one of the most powerful parts of that story is when Job has lost everything, his three friends just come and sit with him. And I think it's this recognition that sometimes there's not, not anything that can be said. And they, they start getting in trouble when they start talking, uh, ironically enough. And so I, 
I think there's a lot of a lot to be learned from that, and ju- that just showing up can s- communicate so much to people. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I receive that, um, and I think that in my own life, if we, you know, that we are eventually going to transition into vices and thinking about. You know, even in loved ones that uh, that are in my life that have walked away from their faith or just haven't been as uh, as you know on fire as either myself or some of my other siblings in in the family, and it's like as you try to you know you know preach the gospel to them, their like hearts are completely turned off. But it's like just being able to be present for them or like showing up to their kids like sporting events and just being able to show up, it's like expands the relationship in that way. And um, so, yeah, I really, um, really received that. And the other thing that was just coming to mind was, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, I forget the name of the movie, but it was the, the, the movie about um, Mr. Rogers life with Tom Hanks. Yeah. Uh, And there was a powerful scene in that movie where Tom Hanks comes and visits um, the family as they're like all huddled around their dad and he's like dying, but they don't, they are not really being able to talk about death. Like, like just they like, like you said, it's like the fact that this guy's dying is so like, everyone knows it. It's like so clear. And yet no one's like able to talk about that elephant that's in the room. And, and uh, Tom Hanks, like, you know, playing Mr. Rogers in the, in the movie is like, you know, that, you know, everyone dies. And if, if it's a human condition, then it's something that we can talk about. And then like has the ability to like bring it up and like, it just like lifts everyone's spirits in the moment. So they can just like put it on the table and then be able to like move on from that. And, and um, yeah, I've kind of like experienced in my own life too, like when my grandfather of my, my mom's dad was passing away, um, my and I think this resonates for me because my family is one of those ones where where we usually like want to talk about all things excellence, but not being willing to like talk about our sufferings. <laughs> and so and I've been kind of like blessed in that way to just kind of like let it like wear my heart on my sleeve and be able to share like really what's going on. And so my grandfather, we were all there as he was like the last day before he passed. And he like woke up from like his like comatose state and he was like, why is everyone here? And it was like me and my eldest brother and my eldest brother's like, oh, we just love you, grandpa. We want to be here for you. And I was like, I was like, grandpa, you're dying. Like, you know, we, we think that this is going to be your last day. And um, because when in response to my brother, he was just still more confused and not able to like understand like, like what's going on. And then like, as soon as I said that he like had peace about him of like, Oh, okay. Now I really understand why everyone is like, everyone has showed up today and, and also like being able to help him kind of like process where he's at in that moment. So that was, uh, uh, I, I, that was, that had been my experience of like, yes, I hear you that you can say the wrong things, but sometimes when people are, in their end of state, it's like, you don't want to miss those opportunities to be able to say those, like, to say, like, I love you or, or be able to share those feelings that you have for people. 
that like I could just only see like you know being able to have those regrets of like oh I wish I would have said this or I would have said said that etc. Yeah, you know I, I, it's such a it's such a precious time to be with people when when they're they're transitioning and I you know I think it's one of those things where I think you made the point earlier Christopher where all of us are going to likely have that experience in life where we're going to lose a parent or potentially a spouse or God forbid a child. And in those moments, sometimes we can, we can almost um, harm more than help. And, and that harm not necessarily inflicted on other people, but, but really kind of harm ourselves from that experience or, or harm ourselves with how we perceive death or to harm ourselves that we have to avoid pain at all costs. And that's just not, to Fred Rogers point, that is not part of the human condition. I mean, we, we are the only created beings that know that, that death is around the corner. You know, animals don't know that they don't live with any, any mindfulness of that. We, we know that we know that it's part of life. And so the more that, that we can at least get comfortable with it, no one wants to see a loved one go. No one wants to see someone who's been a part of our lives leave us. But my goodness, what a, what a tremendous opportunity to be with them in those final moments and to share with them all that they have meant and will continue to mean in our lives. Uh, you know, I, I try to encourage families when they talk about family members that have passed, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, I really, really loved my dad. And I'll say, well, it sounds like you really love your dad. You know, I mean, like it, they don't, they, yeah, physically they're not here, but that, that love that you have for them doesn't have to stop. You can, you can continue to love them. You can continue to, uh, to miss them. Uh, you can continue to live by the things that they taught you by. I mean, so those, again, it's very much part of the human condition, but so is love. And, and love is one of those things that, uh, thankfully transcends the difficult moments in our life. Have you been feeling unfulfilled? You want to be happy, but just continue to struggle. One of the best ways to experience joy is by caring for the homeless. A charity I've grown to love, River Light, food rescues a million meals per year for the needy in Chicago. Imagine how that make you feel, knowing that you're helping feed children and veterans. To make a tax-deductible donation, Visit RiverLightChicago.org. Again, RiverLightChicago.org. No one should go to bed hungry. Awesome. Well, well, thank you for sharing that, Adrian. Um, so, as we dive into kind of like you know helping others by inspiring them to virtuous leadership. Uh, before we get on to the virtue side of that discussion, can you speak about maybe some of the vices that you've you've had to overcome in order to be the leader that you are today? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. And I, I think anytime you're asked to do some introspection, uh, both both pro and con, it, it can it can be a little difficult. But I, I think for me, even thinking back to my um, my growing up years, I, I would I, I limited myself. A lot. Um, and I think some of that was probably rooted in some insecurities, um, never, never feeling like I, I merited people's favor or their friendship or, um, or the opportunities that would come my way as if I didn't, I didn't deserve them. And sometimes that would translate into wanting to prove people right or, or prove people wrong, whether, whether it was them trusting me or saying I couldn't do something. But I, I think part of 
of, of understanding that vice is, is number one, similar to what the conversation about death is understanding that we all have them and, and it's, it's okay. Um, the, the real challenge is, is the now one, like, what do you, what do you do with that? Once you identified it, um, what are you prepared to do about it? And so for me, particularly working in an environment like a corporate environment, the opportunity to, to stretch and to flex what I perceive to be limitations has, is constantly before me, uh, whether that is, is seeking to expand the chaplain services department in our hospital, whether it's looking for uh, growth opportunities for myself, whether it's um, seeking out uh, a, a new way of learning or a, a new way of leading. And so I, I've really tried to um, get more comfortable with, with not being limited. Because uh, sometimes that felt like a safe place, and sometimes it, it felt like there was um, safety and, and not risking being told no, or not risking uh, having people um, upset with you or questioning you. But to, to take some of those steps and and to be courageous and and to be bold, and to also do that with a sense of humility as well. Yeah, because even if they say yes, so now it's on your back to be able to figure it out. So, right. right. Well, now, I, now I'm taking on this added responsibility, and now what Now what the heck am I going to do? Right. And I think sometimes, too, you know, when you think about, about limiting, um, I, I look and I, I think largely, by and large, and this is more in retrospect, I've done that to myself. It's not been... It's not been people telling me, well, you can't do this or, or you can't do that. It's been more um, internally me convincing myself that I can't mm -hmm. or convincing myself that people wouldn't be interested or convincing myself that I, I, I couldn't possibly accomplish that. And so, you know, as I've gotten older and as I take a look back, I think, OK, well, who was the loudest voice when it came to the limitations that I faced? Well, I think I think I was probably the loudest voice of that. And uh, and so it's. There's definitely, it's definitely been a process and it still is uh, to, to be able to step out from that from time to time. Yeah. So uh, as a follow-up on that, Adrian, where do you think those self-limiting, like, where does that come from? Is that like a generational thing or is that something that there was a moment maybe in your life where you feel like there was a shift or have you thought more into kind of like the root of that? Yeah, I, I think for me, um, I think a lot of things can be taken back to a person's childhood. Uh, I had a great childhood. So, I mean, I, I tell my parents all the time, if I could be half the dad and mom and parent to my kids that y'all been to me, I'll, I'll consider parenting a success. But um, for me, it, 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 I think it really crystallized when I was in college. I got sick while I was a sophomore in college and um, went through a lot of months of testing, um, seen specialists, and they, they finally were able to zero in and, and um, was ended up being diagnosed with, with multiple sclerosis. And um, one of the appointments that I had with a, an MS specialist, we, we, my parents, I'll never forget this, we traveled two hours to go see this guy who we waited six months for an appointment for. And he spent 10 minutes with us. And he put the films up and he looked at them and he moved my legs around and, um, and he said, you, you absolutely have MS. And, uh, mm -hmm. and he said, it's most likely very aggressive. Uh, he said, you need to drop out of school, leave college, um, 
told my parents, my parents were building a house at the time and told them that in no uncertain terms, you, you might need to be prepared to have a, uh, a handicapped child living with you. Um, I was 20 at the time. And I remember that ride back. I mean, my mom, you know, sniffling, my dad shut down completely me thinking about how I was going to tell my girlfriend at the time and uh, what that meant. Like, uh, the, the spring semester was winding down and the fall semester was going to be here. And we were registering for classes. Like, am I really going to leave school? Um, and I, I doubled down. And, uh, and I, I think for me, it was, you're telling me I can't do something or that I shouldn't do something. I'm going to, to show you. But I think that was the, the first time in my life, aside from parents telling you no and, and things like that, I think that was the first time in my life that I really felt a shot across the bow where the, the limitations got very clear. And, and in terms of I might not be able to do something or I might not have the chance to do something. And because of what somebody sees in me or what someone perceives in me. And, and so that in some ways has, has, colored uh some interactions i've had in the future where how people how i think people perceive me or how i think people interact with me do they are they looking you know are they looking at that different kind of film saying uh i don't think so um and so that that is something you know oh gosh almost 20 years later uh over 20 years later that um that i i keep before me and i i look back at that encounter and i think i you know i i stuck with school. I finished it. Thankfully, um, the, the disease hasn't taken the course that they were thinking. And, uh, and I, I look back and think, well, sometimes people are wrong hmm. and, and that's, that's okay. I mean, nothing, there's nothing, you know, I don't, I don't fault that doctor at all. I mean, it, but it, it does, um, it does paint a different picture for me when I start thinking about people's perceptions and how they might perceive my limitations. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, what a grace it was for you to be able to have that mind state of, of yeah, you know what, if you say that I can't do this, then I'm just going to prove you wrong. Because it yeah. could have easily went the other way where it's like, whoa, like, you know, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, you know, the doctor saying, oh, yeah, this is going to be very aggressive. And you're like, okay, I accept it. And then, you know, you, you go down this, you know, tailspin of the depression and anxiety and, you know, just constantly overthinking everything. Uh, and I think that there's probably a lot of people that end up doing that uh, with, with diagnoses like that. And instead of having that, that hope that you had to just continue, just, you know, taking that next step and taking the next step and taking the next step and to be, you know, 20 years after and being able to see all the ways that you've been able to prove that doctor wrong is, is an incredible gift. So that's awesome. And, uh, but I can see how, you know, kind of like from being in a moment where you're like really sick and really kind of like, you know, thinking through um, just like having those, those beliefs where you don't feel like you're able to, to do things or that you really, you know, might not be able to get married, finish college, all that stuff, how that can kind of like almost like a seed of fear that kind of like 
can be planted to stopping you from being able to progress and ask for promotions or ask for new opportunities or, you know, be able to present kind of like differing uh, visions to what, you know, your bosses may be presenting, et cetera. Just those different leadership opportunities and just being able to like, just be sitting in the, the comfort of like, oh, I don't know if I want to rock the boat at this point. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, that that's certainly, when you, when you know, none of us are, you know, it's funny kind of coming full circle with the whole death conversation. I mean, none of us are promised tomorrow. Right. But I, I think when you, um, you know, when you're well and when you're healthy, you, you think you're in control and, and when you get sick, you, you know, you're not. Hmm. And so there, there is something about, you know, you look at your career and you think, okay, well in five years, I want to be in this position or in 10 years, I want to have accomplished this, or I want to be given this opportunity and, and I, I think I feel the same way, but I, I think my experience has been, been colored a little bit by, by a future that, that at times felt very uncertain. And, and, and thinking about that, it, 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 in many respects, impacted how I felt about myself and how I felt about the opportunities and the things that I could do. And so it was from this place of constantly trying to prove myself and prove my worth of, of what I could do and what I could contribute. Adrian, so we, we talked about the, the vice question and from that vice, you know, we had identified the virtue of hope. Are there any other virtues where you feel like you've been, you've been gifted in um, that you can speak on? Uh, if it, if this is, if this feels weird even saying it, but I, I kind of go based off what my wife says and what my, my colleagues at work say and, and, that's the, the, the virtue of humility. I, I tend to operate from a servant leadership perspective. And so I, for me, it's, it's recognizing that I would never ask anyone who, who is part of our department to do something that I, I wouldn't do. And, and so if I, and I feel that way working at the hospital. So, I mean, if I see trash on the floor, I'm picking it up. I, I don't expect or think that we have people who do that. And, and so for me, it is, it's constantly looking at how, how best do I embody being a, a servant leader? And that, that informs my conversations, one-on-one -on -one conversations with our staff. It informs the hard conversations at times that, that have to be had. Uh, it informs how I model uh, my role. And, you know, more than anything, I, I look at that servant leader mentality, and I, I can't think of a time at least from what I've seen where, where that has not served someone well. And so for me, some of that's had to be learned, but, but some of it too, I think has come naturally through, um, through being sick and being humbled and, uh, and, and having to, to maybe learn a, a little di bit different approach uh, to life and, and to the gift of life and to the preciousness of life and, and to the preciousness of relationships. So humility um, is, is something that I, I tend to hear people reflect back to me as something they, they see in me. And uh, I've, I've been told, <laughs> I have a colleague who tells me, anytime, anytime a kind word is said about me, my head immediately goes down. Um, that I just, I, I, I have a hard time hearing that sometimes. And so I, I think that for me it is, yeah, that, trying to, to see it as a virtue, but see it as a virtue that um, in a humble way I can be thankful for. Hmm. 
Yeah, the uh, I don't know why the image of you picking up trash was <laughs> resonating with me. Um, most recently, I feel like the Lord has been speaking to me about um, uh, just like, you know, there's that scripture that if you're trusted with the little, then you can be trusted with with greater things. And and so there's been I've we've been in the season where where um, in at the end of August, we adopted a uh, an 11 month old pug. And it was my first like um, dog that I've ever had any actually first pet I've ever had in my entire life. Uh-huh. And um, so it's been interesting to like, you know, and like everyone like, you know, glorifies like, Oh, you have a pet and it's cool to have a pug and stuff like that. But then it's like the same thing where you don't see the fact that you've got to, you know, you've got to take them on walks <laughs> and you they, they, you know, especially puppies have a lot of energy. So they got to be walked pretty frequently. Otherwise then they're maybe, you know, going to the bathroom in the house and then that needs to be cleaned up. And it's like being able to take care of those, uh, you know, take care of the pug and take care of your, like the little things to then we found out. So that was in August. We then um, bought a house together, my wife and I in September and then uh, our two-year wedding anniversary is in June, but we found out like in the last like week and a half that we're expecting. Um, oh, congratulations! Oh, thank you, thank you. And so I really felt like the Lord was saying, like, because you showed me that, like, you could, you know, take care of this little pug puppy. Because my prior two sons, I have a nine and seven-year-old boys, but this I um, actually had them before I became a believer and was born again. So it was, it's been, it's, I mean, it's been interesting. You know, obviously, like taking care of them, loving them, helping them, and every in every shape of of the word of being a present dad and loving them and doing all that stuff. So I'm not saying that like, okay, I I wasn't being that type of dad, but there was something special specifically about the pug where I felt like the Lord was just speaking to me about like, kind of like taking care of the little things in life. And so that image of you, Adrian, bringing it back to you of like, you know, like when we have the cognizance of like, Hey, this is my house. Like the hospital is my house. This is my place. And to be able to like, if you see something that's wrong, like something as simple as trash, pick it up. It's like those little acts that like show that like you're really invested and you're in it to win it that then manifests itself into a bigger component of being able to take on more and more responsibility as well. Yeah. Uh, well, congratulations. And, uh, you know, it, it is one of those things where I do think, having had experience with little things, it does prepare you for those big things when it come, when they come along in life. And I, I think it gives us some measure of confidence that, you know, if I can, if I can keep a pug alive and take care of it, then maybe a child is a good next step. Right? Like I, can, I know I can do it. And, and thankfully God and his good graces, um, you know, tends to, tends to equip us for what season of life we're in. And, and I think sometimes I, I tell our nursing staff this all the time, especially having gone through COVID, it, it, it's, it, things are tough. But if you look back in your life and you look at the difficulties you've had in your life and the growth areas you've had in your life, if you think about what's gotten you through them, that's likely going to be what gets you through the, the tough things in the future. And so for some people, that is faith. And for some people, it's trust and belief that, yeah, I was faithful in a little and now I'm, I'm being given more. And I'm, I'm going to seek and strive to be as faithful with that as I can. 
So Adrian, what's the uh, biggest challenge in your life that you're facing today? More than anything, Christopher, I, I want to be a great father. Uh, I've got, I think I mentioned at the beginning, I've got three kids and, uh, you know, I, I, they're 11, 9, and 5. And I, I'm known in our community in a lot of different ways, whether it's at the hospital or the community where I, I pastor a church. Um, but I, I think more than anything, I, I want to be known as a great dad. And I, I want my kids to make sure that they know that uh, they are the most important thing in my life. I mean, I, you know, my wife, we, we, we have a wonderful relationship and I'm so thankful for her. But I really see them as my first priority. I, you know, I have a congregation at the hospital that I'm, I'm trying to take care of, and I have a congregation in a church that I'm trying to take care of. But I, I view my three kids as my first congregation, hmm. and um, and so for me, it, it's it's really every day is trying to think about how can I how can I reflect for them grace? How how can I model for them love? How can I uh, instill discipline in a measured way. Um, how how can I help them to see um, how how much they've been given, and at the same time, how much opportunity they have? And so, for me, that's it. Feels like a daily challenge uh, of of holding each day for what it is that there are these serendipitous moments that that we are given to really impact and lean in and speak into a person's life. And I'm, I'm well aware of that in my work at the hospital, but that feels so much more focused when I'm at home with my, with my kids. And so that's, that is something that I'm constantly, um, it's constantly on my mind and something that I feel like I'm constantly evaluating in my own life. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's take that to prayer, Adrian. So, sure. So, Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity for us to be able to connect today. And Lord, uh, I could just see this man's passion for wanting to um, just love on his children. And it's those that love that he's been able to show for his natural family or blood family that has given you the confidence to only continue to expand his fatherhood but, you know, his spiritual fatherhood over the uh, work that he's doing at the hospital for his congregation there, his congregation and the church as well. And that, Lord, that um, I, I just pray that like the father of faith, Abraham, that you would just continue to give him more and more spiritual children for him to be able to shepherd. And Father, that I would just pray that in Jesus' name, that if there's if there's any ways that he's continually not uh, being able to fully step forward into that role, that Lord, that you would melt it away, and that uh, you know that that uh, iron sharpens iron, that you would bring other people into his life that would speak into his life to be able to help him to grow and develop to being able to you know, uh, pastor a, a massive, a massive um, flock. And so, Father, I also pray and come against, uh, as, as Adrian was just speaking uh, today about some of, you know, the vice that he's had to overcome of self-limiting beliefs, I felt like you were saying, Lord, that it's more than just what he's bringing up today, that there's people listening today on the podcast that also struggle from self-limiting beliefs. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we break off any self-limiting beliefs that people 
are struggling with that are in our audience and listening to this. So uh, we, we thank you, Father, for the freedom that only you can bring and your faithfulness as a loving God who wants to be present to us. And Lord, we also need humble leaders like Adrian to lead this next generation of leaders to, to grow and develop. And so, Father, we just pray that you would give, you would pour out uh, humility on your on the next level of leaders that are uh, coming up after as the baby boom generation exits the workforce that father that you would just raise up humble leaders that are um, servant leaders and that love your people lord that are passionate about your bride and we thank you father for the way for your faithfulness and your loving kindness and compassion that you have for your bride, Lord. And uh, Lord, I just continue to lift up Adrian in prayer that uh, that you would answer his prayers of being a loving father and a present and kind uh, husband and father. And I thank you, Lord, for um, this relationship that you've continued to help us expand. And we pray all of this through the mighty name of our blessed Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Christopher. No worries. Well, thank you for uh, watching us on the Virtuous Heroes podcast, where we inspire virtuous leadership. Adrian, thank you again for being with us and many blessings to you. Thank you very much. Hey, Chris here. Hope you enjoyed the episode where we discussed all things going bald. <laughs> Just joking. If you enjoyed the episode and the podcast, will you please subscribe on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Or you could also share it with a friend. That would be tubular. I hope you have an awesome day. <laughs>